Hi, this is Toko US Brand Manager Ian Harvey. I'm here with Reese Hanneman. Reese has represented the United States 36 times in World Cup and Olympic Games. Reese has four individual US national championship wins all in the sprints. He has also won a NORAM race in 2016 in the classic sprint. Reese has been on the US national championship individual podium nine times, including a second in the 15K classic and a third in the 50K classic. Reese has seven Super Tour wins. He retired from World Cup racing in 2018, but then did the Tour de Ski China in 2019. Reese was the feature athlete in the Toko Winter Warrior ads, and thus is also known as the Winter Warrior. Since retiring, Reese has gotten his degree in mechanical engineering, focused on developing his marketing and PR firm, and also has a travel service startup. Reese and his brother Logan both run the 2018 US Olympic team, Reese lives in Anchorage, Alaska with his wife, Jessica, who's expecting their first child shortly. So thank you very much for being here with Reese. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. So let's, um, let's first get the, the 401 on your wife. So Jessica's due in about 11 days, I guess. Yeah, that's about right. And it's your first child. So you don't know if it's going to be early or later or what. Yeah, it's, it's our first. We're super excited. Um, yeah, at this point, it could be it could be any any minute. So um, yeah, there's uh, we have our we have our go bags packed. You know, I'm ready to. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but um, I'm ready to. Like when I go for a ski now, I I keep my phone on loud because at this point she she could call me and I'll have to end the workout. <laughs> um. I don't think I've ever told anyone this before, but when Antia and I had our first baby, which was Hazel, mm -hmm. she was stuffing catalogs. She was in her warehouse stuffing catalogs in envelopes, thousands and thousands of them. Yeah. You kept telling me all day that her back was killing her. It turns out those were labor pains and she had no idea what labor pains felt like. Yeah. So I don't know how much experience Jessica has with this, but um, that's something to clue into because as it turns out, she was in like six hours of labor stuffing catalogs in the back of this warehouse it's a good I distraction yeah <laughs> I didn't feel too good about myself after that yeah yeah we're uh, I mean she's 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 pretty she's pretty aware and she's she's on she's uh she's really really intelligent and, and she's learned a lot about um kind of how this pregnancy um you know how it could go so I think she's I think she's ready to, to ready to do it she's gonna do great but um yeah I mean it's it's a little bit um I could see how it'd be intimidating, you know, coming at you a big event like that. I almost picture, you know, I, I can't help but pick, kind of think of it as in terms of a competition, you know, maybe the biggest, the biggest, most painful competition of your life coming at you. And you know, it's, you know, it's going to be really tough and you're going to, you're going to be in pain and um, you're going to probably want to quit in the middle of it. But um, so I'm trying to, I'm trying to cheer her on and encourage her in the same way that I would, I, you know, kind of how I would want it if I was going into that too. So. Our nearest family was about 15 or 1700 miles away. And so we were uh, constantly referring to the what to expect when you're expecting book, mm -hmm. then the what to expect in the first year, et cetera. Yeah. It really helped us a lot because we didn't have a clue what we were doing. Yeah. That's what everyone says. They said that yeah. no one knows what they're doing. So, <laughs> okay, well, let's get back to, let's get to skiing here. First, uh, can you tell us where you grew up and how you started skiing and ski racing? Yeah, I grew up in Fairbanks, Alaska, uh, which is kind of in, in the, right in the kind of middle of Alaska and uh it's the northernmost like major major city um in Alaska and uh, I basically learned how to walk on skis I have pictures of my parents 
kind of holding me by the armpits, you know, um, and letting me kind of shuffle along before I could really stand up too well. So, um, yeah, I mean, skiing, you know, it's, uh, we get winter, we get a lot of snow and, and winter, you know, seven months a year, sometimes more. And so it was a great place to, you know, skiing was an awesome activity for us as kids, obviously at a a really young age. And then, um, you know, all the way up because it was something that you could do outside, you could stay active, you know, it was, uh, you can obviously stay warm, um, unlike a lot of other outdoor sports when it's, when it's that cold out. So, um, yeah, I, my parents skied, my, my dad had raced kind of, uh, in college. Um, and then he was, he was done racing after that, but my parents were, were, were recreationally into skiing. So, uh, they kind of taught us and just took us out at, from a young age. So what about racing? How did that start? Um, I think just naturally, you know, we did, of course we did like junior Nordics and stuff like that when we were really young. And then that kind of, uh, there's a, you know, Fairbanks has a really amazing, uh, racing pr- program for kids, uh, you know, really casual. And of course you pretty much are doing it for the hot chocolate and the, cookies at the end but um so we started doing that when we were young and uh I have some I I still have some some of my earliest racing memories um David Norris and I would go back and forth even from when we were like we were like basically speed walking each other to the to the line you know (laughs) and uh, um you know trying to get our ribbon trying to get either someone was going to get the blue ribbon someone was going to get the red ribbon so um that goes way back and uh yeah I think I mean I was you know, I just happened, we, we just skied a lot. And so I was kind of naturally able to do decently well, uh, against the other kids when we were really young. So, um, yeah. And then, and, you know, getting older, I guess, uh, as I grew up, I mean, there was a, there was a portion, there's a period of time, um, as a young junior, you know, trying to make in Alaska, we have a thing called Arctic winter games, which is pretty cool. Um, and it's where Northern countries, like, so any countries that have Arctic, uh, people that live within the Arctic, uh, region, so above the Arctic circle, um, get together for like, it's kind of like a little mini Olympics for kids. Um, and so when you're young Alaskan, you can make that team and that's kind of the goal. And I never made that team. Actually, I was never fast enough to make that team. So there was a portion there where I was, you know, I was not at the top of my age group at all. Um, and then JOs, you know, junior nationals becomes uh, a focus then when you're a, you know, a J2 as, as, uh, people my my era like to say but you know u16 um uh so yeah that was my goal and i was able to start making making the junior national team for alaska um i wasn't i wasn't near the top but uh that keeps you going you know the motive motivation of going somewhere cool um for junior nationals and you know hitting that junior national dance that's like that'll keep you training all year so (laughs) so i'm curious obviously you were very successful as a as a, as a senior athlete, you're saying you weren't very successful as a, at least a, a U16 and I don't know about U18, but what happened? Did you grow? Were you, did you, were you a late bloomer physically? What was holding you back? And then what clicked for you? Yeah, I think, you know, kids are developing at all different stages and rates at that, at that, those ages. And um, I was always like, like you, 14, U16, U18, like I was struggling to make the junior national team, you know, for Alaska. And Alaska has a lot of really strong skiers, a, a lot of which, you know, ended up being my peers on the World Cup and Olympic team and stuff like that. But um, yeah, so I think skiing for me, one of the best things that I've, that I've gotten out of skiing is a work ethic. And I, I learned, you know, as a kid, when I was 
13, 14, 15, 16, I kind of started to see that relationship between work and results. And, um, you know, that's, and it doesn't mean that I was winning, but I saw that, okay, like this summer I trained, I, I roller skied for the first time, you know, when I was 15 and, oh, I did a little bit better this year, you know, and I, and you can kind of see that go to that correlation. And so, um, you know, I, I think, yeah. And basically as I got older, I just, I started to take it more seriously. I started to work harder. I started to train. I was pretty self-motivated. Um, you know, I would train before high school and we didn't have, we didn't have like a competitive club back then. There was no, there was no kids training group. There was, nobody was roller skiing. David and I were like groundbreaking that we were roller skiing in high school in Fairbanks. And, uh, so we started doing that and, and, um, yeah. And then we started, I, you know, I started working pretty hard at it. And uh, by the end of my junior national career, like when I was a U20, I was winning. I won a couple races. Um, and, you know, each kind of each level kind of um, inspires you to the next. And uh, you think, well, I did, you know, oh, I won that race. Like what maybe I could win that one, you know, the next one on top. And so you work for that for a couple of years. So, so I, have a, I, have a, I want to get your perspective on this, but here's where my perspective comes from. When I was a freshman in high school, I was 99 pounds and four foot 11. That was a mm. shrimp. And now look at you. Yeah. <laughs> but, the, but the thing is, I, my, my results more or less reflected my physical uh, status, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And, and I was chipping, I was trying to figure out how to get two seconds faster here, two seconds faster there. And I was working. I was, I was working so hard mentally and physically, but trying to figure out better technique, better strategy, better tactics, just every little thing. And then I grew. And then suddenly I was the best junior in the country by a country mile. And I think I, because I had to struggle for those years without having the physical capacity, when I got the physical capacity, it was like done, everything clicked and I was off and running. Um, and so I'm really grateful I was a late bloomer physically, mm-hmm. because I think if it had been the other way around, I never would have come close to developing all those nuances that needed to be developed. Yeah. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. You know, kids, kids, athletics is tough because you do have you have the freaks, you know, from an early age. Like, I mean, my brother was like that. And I think he's done an amazing job of, of transitioning from being very successful young. I mean, he was huge. Like he's a, he's been a beast since he was. 12 years old you know and just just dominating everybody because it's like he's like a senior skier and um you know transitioning that to senior to senior level results is is can be tough um but I don't know you know I don't know if there's one that's better or worse but um certainly you know I was I was definitely not a freak um I people people always kind of assume like, Oh, you know, you, you were the, you've always been the best, you know? And it's like, well, I mean, you know, I was, I think I was like eighth place at Alaska state high school championships. You know, I mean, I was, I was not. And, and I, of course that was distance skiing, you know, and high school is all distance stuff. And I ended up being better at sprinting and I always knew that. Um, but I think that's good for, you know, especially good for a sprinter is to develop that distance because you really to be a sprinter at the world level, like you need a very, very high level of, of aerobic and distance skills. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, yeah, kids are always kind of, you know, like one year someone's, you know, jumped way ahead and, and that can be tough for kids. I mean, I, I work with some kids and I talk to young skiers quite a bit and, you know, they're always, you know, mentally that's tough when someone leapfrogs you one year and you're trying to keep the motivation going, but, um, that's just part of, yeah, I don't know. There's no way around it really, but yeah. 
So tell me about your career, your transition from Fairbanks to Anchorage and from junior racing to suddenly being a solid senior. How'd you get yeah, so, from point A to point B? Yeah. So my senior year of high school, um, I went to my first, that was my, I was 18 and I went to my first, uh, senior national senior nationals. Uh, and that was in Houghton, Michigan. Everybody's everybody's favorite nationals. Uh, somebody, everybody's gone there at some point. And, um, so that was my first one and I went there and I was, like I had said, I was not, um, you know, I was not, a, I was not, a, I was not a super standout skier. I was, I was pretty solid for the juniors at that point, but, um, I went there and uh i missed the senior sprint heats i think i was like 30 second or whatever somewhere in there right right outside of the senior heats and i made the junior heats at junior heats back then and um i won i ended up winning this the the junior sprint final uh and that actually just the way the points work out got me a spot on the world junior team and i didn't i really at that point had not even been in the running for world juniors i didn't know what that really meant um, anyway, so I made this world junior team. I went to world juniors, absolutely got destroyed. I mean, I was like, I don't know, embarrassingly near the back seventies or something like that. Um, that was like my first time skiing on like really wet European snow. And, uh, but it, you know, that experience was just like totally eye opening. And I remember, you know, watching Yohog win and, um, just being like, wow, you know, I mean, maybe I could, maybe I could compete at this level, you know? And so, uh, I came back from world juniors and I was pretty fired up and I just, uh, you know, I trained really hard for the next year or two. I stayed in Fairbanks, um, after I graduated high school, just made the decision. I could have gone and skied some at some different colleges, but I made the decision to stay in Fairbanks. Uh, I just stayed living at home at my parents' house, kept it super simple. I started my engineering degree at UAF, uh, and I was just training and going to school and, uh, yeah, I, I had made the goal that I wanted to try to ski, make a World Cup, ski one World Cup. Um, and uh, in two, two years later, I did. I made the first, my, my first World Cup. I went to Canmore. Uh, that was like part of the Nations group. Um, so that, I believe that would be 2010, 2010. I made that, had a freak. Uh, I was third place at Senior Nationals in the sprint. And that was kind of out of the blue. And then, um, yeah, so then, so that was in Fairbanks for two years. And I, had raced a world cup and, you know, was going to like U 23s at that point. And I basically decided, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to see if I can go, I'm going to see if I can go big. I'm going to see if I can be a full-time skier. Um, I'm going to see if I can ski on the world cup consistently. Um, and the Olympics were kind of a goal still, but I mean, at that point I was not fast enough to really justify, like I wasn't going to be making the Olympics anytime soon, but I thought that maybe, maybe I could, you know, maybe two cycles or something like that away. But, uh, so I made the decision. I told my parents, I said, Hey, I'm, I decided I'm going to move to Anchorage. I'm going to join APU, which at that point, like we hated APU. There was like the big team from Anchorage, you know, and it was like, no way. So I was like totally committing <clears throat> like treason here, you know, by leaving Fairbanks and going to Anchorage. But, um, yeah, I, I thought I knew that's what I needed to do. I had met Eric Flora and he, um, you know, it was just, so I, I could tell uh, his skills as a coach and he was such a great, um, great personality and I, I could sense his passion for it. And um, so I decided to move to Anchorage, joined APU, started training there. And then, you know, that's obviously a, a really strong team, a lot surrounded by a lot of a lot of good skiers and Olympians and support and stuff like that. So that's kind of the next chapter. Cool. Um, so 
I'd love to hear about your thoughts on Eric Flora as a coach. You worked with him for your, your entire senior career. Mm-hmm. Um, and also about the opportunities that the APU program provides. Yeah. I mean, Eric is, <clears throat> he's a once in, like, that's what I tell people. He's a once in a lifetime coach. Um, he, he works so hard and he is so passionate about it. Um, and he's really selfless. And I think it's quite amazing. Sometimes I worry for his health because I don't, <laughs> I hope it's sustainable for him, but he loves it so much that I think, I think it is. He's just driven by a passion for helping skiers um, and American skiers. And yeah, he, he's incredible. I mean, he, he put, you know, when you're surrounded with someone that brings that kind of energy, you know, you need that as an athlete, you need people around you because, you know, every other day you might feel terrible and you might want to, you know, some days you want to quit. Uh, it's just too hard and you're not finding success. Um, so having someone like that who, you know, uh, instills that same feeling into the, into the people around you that you're training with, uh, just gives you a really strong foundation. Um, and I think that's, I think that's why he's been so successful. He's creating a, created a culture of, of training really hard and being really passionate about it and enjoying kind of, you know, he's, he's pretty good about uh, reminding us all to enjoy it, you know, and not just, not just do it for the end result, um, which is important. I I am a lot of, you know, athletes are pretty results oriented and it's easy to get down after a race or a, you know, whatever, a bad interval session. Um, So you have to kind of remember that it's not about that. So he's, he's really good about that. And then APU, Um, yeah, I'm just really lucky that there's a a program like that here, you know, in Alaska, like I didn't have to move too far. I mean, there's a few APU, obviously Stratton, you know, CXC used to be pretty, pretty solid, um, the green team, uh, Sun Valley, you know, and, and uh, skiing has changed. I mean, even since I was a kid, uh, back in the day, you know, I was, I, I made junior national team and I had barely roller skied and that doesn't fly anymore you know you can't that's you can't do that anymore so you need uh you know the level's changing and i think uh america we're seeing it on the american stage you know american skiers are are competing with the best and uh so having a club like that i think is is becoming more important i mean i would love i love the idea of small clubs and and individuals even around the country doing it and and going to the top on their own but the reality is it's just really really tough and the, the sport is so hard and requires so much training. Um, and there's enough, there's so much else that you need to do in order to be successful that it's hard to do all of that yourself. And For sure. Also an important aspect of that is having other really good skiers to bang heads against every day. It's motivating. You learn, you, you get instant feedback. Let's say you're doing an interval with someone yeah. and you can play with technique a little bit and get instant feedback. Whereas if you're alone, you're not getting it. Right. You know, um, so there's the other reasons as well for trying to have very strong clubs and train and then unify with one of them. Yeah. And there's, there's merits to both. I mean, there are, there are merits to training alone um, and you can get a lot out of that. And, and, but there's also merits with training with people. I mean, when you train alone, you know, you can, you can focus, you can, uh, you can really get good in your own headspace. You can kind of do exactly what you need to do. Um, but you know, you, you can train alone and you feel really fast and you go train with, you know, some of the top dogs and you realize, eh, I got a little work to do. So yeah. yeah. But, but I mean, there's no one, no one, I don't think 
generally forces you to train with other people if you want to want to do a, a workout on your own now and of then. Of course, yeah, Great. yeah. But when you're alone, it's difficult to find really good quality training partners that might also be aligned in terms of what they might want to be doing, for example, for intensity workouts on any given day. So Totally. Yeah. yeah so I, I actually, you know, I give a lot of credit to, uh, you see less of it now, but like, you know, when I was growing up, I mean, Freeman and uh, Noah Hoffman, and, and, you know, there were guys around the country who were basically lone wolfing it and Tad. And I'm like, I don't know how you do that. I mean, that's really impressive to be able to train and to be at that level and just basically be flying solo. Um, so yeah, I, I think you're going to see less of that anymore because the level is just too high and uh, it's just too competitive now, you know, and we're, we're us is getting good. So um, yeah, I agree. So Reese, you won four individual us national championship titles, starting with a 2014 classic sprint in soldier hollow where you also won silver in the 15K classic and bronze in the skate sprint, which made for an incredible week. That same huh. year in the spring, you also won bronze in the 50K classic mass start national championship held at Kincaid. What can you tell me about that special week and year? What made things click for you, especially that year in 2014? Yeah, that was a, that was a pretty, I'm going to be totally honest with you. That was actually a pretty tough time in my life because I, uh, was going, I had just, I had been in a long-term dating relationship and that was, um, had, was getting really rocky during that time. And so, uh, skiing to me at that point in my life, skiing was kind of like, <sighs> skiing was basically my God at that point. And so I kind of like just put all my energy into skiing. I got really, really, um, you know, I got motivated by, by, I just started training like an animal. Um, and I got really eager to prove, um, to prove that I was, you know, at the top. And, um, I, yeah, I mean, that was an Olympic year. That was 2000, 2014, obviously. And I went into those nationals, um, hoping to, hoping to make the team. I mean, it would have been pretty far. It would have been kind of an outside. I had definitely had an outside chance, but I had, you know, had been winning some sprints and I had been like super tours and stuff like that. Um, and the way the points worked back then was kind of funky, but I, I thought I had a chance and I, you know, I, I went to that nationals and um, you know, had a podium sweep, you know, one, two, three, three events, distance and sprint, you know, medals in both sprints. And I felt like that warranted a spot on the team, on the Olympic team. And it, and it would have in any other year, you know, of course, but um, I didn't make the team. They didn't name me um, that year. And so that really, um, yeah, I mean, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't, wasn't fired up, you know, after that. And I was kind of on a, on a, on a war path, you know, to say, look, like I deserved a spot on that team. And so I went out and I was like winning, Super, I mean, I won a bunch of super tours, I think, after that and, and was really fired up that spring to basically prove that I had been, you know, should, should have been on that team. Um, so I, yeah, I was, I was in really good shape. I mean, I, I had uh, prepared really well. I was skiing super fast. I was on the podium in distance races that year, which is, didn't always happen for me. Um, 
and uh, I was at home that spring, that 50K. I was at home in Anchorage, you know, and there was people all around, like from, from you know, people that I knew, all my friends and family were there cheering. So that always fires you up. And um, yeah, I just had a, I had a great day. And uh, that was that was a really good season. I won, obviously won the Super Tour overall um, after that year. And that I actually that spring I, I had to I had to make a big decision. I mean, I didn't have to make it then, but I. I, I knew I had a decision to make is like, do I keep skiing? Um, because I felt like I had just done basically as well as I could have, you know, it, it was like, that was a pretty dang good season. You know, I didn't make the Olympic team. Mm-hmm. I felt like I should have. And a lot of people felt like I should have. I did. Um, and I, you know, I kind of, you kind of come to a head and you're basically like, well, what do I do now? I mean, am I going to go another four years, you know, just in the hopes that I can do a little bit better than that. I mean, that was pretty dang good. Um, but you know, I won the, I'd won the, the overall. So I got to go to the world cup period one, the final, the next year, you know, and that with the super tour spot that's paid for. So that's kind of nice. You're like, okay. So, um, yeah, I was just, I was kind of floating around and I was pretty unsure of myself. And I, you know, my confidence was both from my personal, life and and the ending of that relationship and then not making the ski team not making the team for this for skiing and so I was just you know pretty I was kind of beat up I was not enjoy I was skiing fast but I was not um I was not really happy to be honest and I was searching for you know what what I what I was missing in life and I, I didn't know where I was going and um I didn't know if I wanted to keep skiing I didn't know what so um anyway I just basically decided okay you know what I'm going to take it one season at a time. I'm um, not committing to four years. Uh, and I'm going to go next year, you know, go to period one, go to the world cup, see if I can, you know, have some good results and, and basically kind of just taking it section at a time. So um, that's, yeah, that was a, definitely go through like, you know, highs and lows throughout your career. And uh, that was an interesting time for sure. So I've got a question for you. It seems like you bucked a trend when a skier has a natural aptitude for sprinting, generally when they're young in their career, they excel in sprints, obviously. But traditionally, as they age and absorb training, oftentimes they become more competitive in distance races. Mm-hmm. I find it interesting <laughs> that looking at your career, you found a lot of success. For example, in 2014, you were on the distance podium twice that year at US Nationals, and you did quite well in other distance races. But then from that point on, over the next four years, you had five more podiums in in U.S. Nationals, individual podiums, including two more victories, but all of them were in the sprints. You never podiumed again at U.S. Nationals in the distance races. And this seems to buck the trend of sprinters becoming more competitive in 15Ks as they age and absorb training. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's interesting that you point that out. I mean, I I realized... um probably around then 2014, maybe the next year. Uh, so I want, you know, I won the super tour overall. And I was like, Oh, cool. You know I mean? You could say, Oh, I'm the, I'm the best overall skier in the U S well, I, I mean, I knew that most of my points came from sprints, you know? And so I think the following year I was like, Oh, maybe I'll try to be an all rounder. You know, I'll, I'll really focus. Like I, I won some distance races, you know, I hung on to Noah for most of that 50 K, you know, maybe I'll be a distance here. And, that really didn't, didn't go well necessarily for the the next year, whether that was just circumstantial or um, for whatever reason. But um, I think I realized at that point that 
if I was going to make some of these goals, if I was going to make top 30 on the world cup, if I was going to make the Olympic team, if I was going to go to world championships, it was going to be in sprinting. Mm-hmm. And I was never going to, I mean, I was, I just, I was never going to be world-class in distance. I mean, I was solid. I could, you know, get on the podium in the nationals and I've had some decent distance races on the world cup, but um, I, I just realized that, Hey, look, I, I am not a freak. I'm not like whatever Claybo or these guys who can just win everything. And I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to focus on what I'm good at. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was, it was uh, the last like three years of my career was pretty intentional. Um, I was training, I was training for sprints. I got really, I mean, one of my skills is kind of the tactics and the accelerations and the stuff that really comes into play in sprinting. Um, and so that, you know, that worked in, into my advantage uh, for sprinting. And I think I just learned, I learned how to ski good qualifiers. Finally, I learned how to ski um, just, I mean, heats are my thing. I, I was always very strong in the heats. I almost always moved up from qualifying to heats. Um, and, uh, I just feel very, very confident and in control in the heats. And so I think that's just where my skills kind of came through. And, um, yeah, so I leaned into those as I got, as I became an older athlete, I just, I, I just knew I needed to focus in that area. So, so tactically speaking, uh, you're obviously very astute in the sprints tactically, but I have to say, if you don't, for example, if you're not a sprinter with a really strong, with the ability to accelerate very well, then it's difficult to be a good tactician because you don't have the tools that, that the card to play, you know? Right. Right. And, and so, um, yeah, I, to me, yeah, you're very good tactically and you obviously did very well in the sprints. You pretty much won every sprint you you domestically, you entered for quite a while there. Um, and you weren't necessarily the favorite, you know, like sometimes it was someone who was <laughs> higher ranked or, or qualified better. So someone could think, well, you know, maybe, th- and then you'd, you'd win and people were like, well, wait, Reese won again. Um, but my point is simply, it wasn't just tactical nuance that you were really good at, but you developed the skills, like a really strong acceleration, like the ability to, to fight in multiple heats, one after another, where other people might fade, you had the strength to continue through. You also had the ability to hide in the pack, mm-hmm. not show yourself until the finish line. And then people were like, oh, there's Reese. Yeah, of course he won. But you weren't you weren't uh, leading or working as hard as other people. Um, but it's hard to do that without the skills to be able to accelerate really fast and get to the finish line first. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're totally right. And that's the stuff that I love. I mean, I think I just think that's really it's it's the complex side of sprinting. It's not just a drag race um, most of the time, you know, but I think um, what I really started to enjoy was trying to like each each um, course is different. Each heat that you're in is different. I mean, you I would I would totally change my tactics depending on who was in my heat. I mean, I, you know, and like, for example, Dakota. Um, Black Horse Von Jess and I, he, he and I were like, we'd go back and forth all the time. And he was, he was one of my greatest rivals and also, you know, inspirations. I mean, he was so fast and he had that acceleration. And so I had to learn, like, if I was ever going to beat him, I had to learn how to out accelerate, out maneuver um, and him versus, you know, and there's other, some super fast guys, Saxton and uh, versus someone like say my brother, who is ext- probably one of the fastest. I mean, he's one of the fastest qualifiers right. in the U S certainly when I was skiing um, and still, I mean, he can go, you know, 1.5 K point to point. Not many people are going to beat him. 
Um, but he is a bigger dude. Is he, he has less, he's less maneuverable, less accelerations. And so I, you know, if I was in a heat with him and Patrick Caldwell and a couple of these other guys, I'm like the only way, like, I'm not going to like outrun these guys if I start from the start, you know? Um, Cause they're just, they're there. Some of these guys are better distance skiers, you know, too. So they're going to be able to keep that pace higher, longer. So um, kind of learning how to assess the situation and say, okay, who am I up against? What is this course like? Where's the final hill? Where's the corner? Blah, blah, blah. You know? And um, yeah, I think it's it, uh, I think if you really want to break it down, it can get, it's, it's a lot more than just, Hey, there's another sprint race. Here's my tactic, you know? Um, but I, I definitely pushed myself to learn. I knew that accelerating and starts like starts became big. I mean, on some courses, for example, like the start could be everything, right. You know, I mean, Yellowstone is, you know, Wes is a, is a course that we've all done a million times and it took me a little while, but I found, I, I kind of found the, the recipe for Yellowstone. I mean, I was on the podium the last, whatever, six years of my career straight in Yellowstone. Um, and most people weren't, I mean, it's kind of, it could be easy to be inconsistent there. Um, and so like the start, like there's a certain level of the start, does matter on some and doesn't matter on some. And so you kind of have to know. So I realized I need to, my starts need to be real fast in case uh, some of these courses, it, it matters. You can't pass too many turns too flat. Um, and then yeah, getting good at going, you know, like if you were a car, you know, going, getting really good at going 60 to hundred. Cause once you're up, once you're up at speed, everyone's ripping along in the pack and like, how are you going to pass anybody? I mean, you need to be able to, you need to be able to, in two seconds, you need to be able to like, you know, accelerate by. So, um, practicing that in heats and in training with APU guys and stuff like that. So. That's fun to talk with you about that. The point I want to make again is simply if you don't have the bag of tricks or abilities that card to play, then you don't really can't even join the conversation when it comes to tactics. Let's say you're doing a mass start race and there's a hill before the finish with a downhill to the finish and then it's flat and this hilly course and you're like okay i'm, I'm skiing against a bunch of really fit person people etc okay uh am i the fastest on the climb no i'm not a very good climber okay so you know the big hill before the finish is going to hurt you right um am i a fast sprinter so let's say i'm able to hang somehow am i gonna be able to out sprint these other guys at the finish no i'm not that great a sprinter actually it's like well okay so you got basically one card to play you have to have the fastest pair of skis in the race. Yeah. <laughs> that's your only chance. And that's it. You know, the rest of it, that's the only tactical card you have to play is I need to have the fastest skis in the race, period. You know, whereas someone else might develop their skills such that they can, you know, it's a strategic thing. What right. how am I going to train this summer? At the end of the summer, I want to be able to beat someone's on a double pole or I want to hit max number on the ski erg of this. Or, you know, I want to turn yeah. into, I want to develop some skills. And if you don't do that, you're a tactical idiot. Yeah. Basically. Cause yeah. you don't have any cars to play. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, it's a competition, you know, and it's, I mean, it's, it's a lot more than just who can go fast from here to here. Um, you know, individual start 15 K. I mean, that's basically point to point. There's not right. a lot of tactics. I mean, pacing, right, right. The, the good guys are really good at pacing, but, but sprints are so complex and you have to be able to uh, have all those skills. And I don't, I didn't always have all those skills. I just realized early, like, Hey, I'm going to need all these skills. If I'm going to win, if like my goal is to win every national sprint 
and you know every every sprint out there on the circuit. And some courses are super flat. Some courses are four and a half minutes long. Some courses are really hilly. Some courses are two minutes long. Some courses have a ton of turns. Some courses are all double pull, all straight. You know, it's like, dude, you need a pretty big, pretty wide array of skills. Like you need a you need a lot of clubs in your bag. So, um, I think you just have to kind of you know i mean if it's like so say that that person that you described earlier who maybe is not the strongest hill climber or the strongest sprinter well i would say okay maybe the way to crack that is to like ideally you you're not going to win the hill and you're not going to win the sprint but if you combine them if you know that you can't win either one of those but you need to be you need to be fifth over the hill and then maybe you can out sprint the guys who did beat you on the hill. Right. Right. So like you have to find a way, I mean, or, or if you just don't have the skills, then yeah, you just won't, you just won't win. But um. in marathon racing, that used to be kind of the thing I would tell myself. Yeah. If I can stay with someone in the climbs and you know, I, I was fit and everything, but, but there were some really small guys that were really good in climbs. If I can stay with someone in the climbs, I'm going to bury them on the flats. Yeah. So I didn't worry too much. In a marathon, if I could stay with someone in the climb, I knew that I knew I had them. Yeah. Because there's no way they could stay with me in the flats because I had good power for the flats. Right. And I knew that they knew it, generally speaking. So they were trying to dump me in the climbs. And I would generally start a climb three, four seconds ahead of them. Yep. Like oftentimes you'd have a downhill going into a climb. I'd yeah, make exactly. a move with a downhill, slingshot past them all, hit the yep. climb, and then I'd chill and skip my own pace in the climb, not building much lactic, but much, much uh, blood lactate. And then I'd let them go. And then I, and I, my, my goal wasn't to win the climb. My goal was to work as little as possible as staying with them. Right. And then later in the race, it has some easier train. I could just bury them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's, and that's being self-aware enough to go, okay, how am I, what's my goal? My goal is not to win. It's not to look the coolest on this Hill when right. everyone's cheering. My goal is to beat them to the finish line. Right. So how do, how am I going to do that? Given the set of skills that I have, you know, and right. um, I just think that's a good, that's a good, I mean, that's a good, uh, approach to life to ski racing you know to like what do i have and how can i how can i do better how can i be the best i can with this you know cool that's fun talking with you i got another question that might bring some some uh some thoughts <laughs> most of your distance podiums at u.s nationals were in the classic technique mm -hmm. out of your 20 super tour podiums all were in the sprints except for three and those three races were also distance classic races I think you were, in terms of your technique and your capability, I think you were equally able in sprinting classic versus skate technique. In your super tour, for example, career, you had nine skate sprint podiums and eight classic sprint podiums. So you were pretty, pretty similar in both. But I've also noticed a general trend in the World Cup. When sprinters do well in distance races, it's generally in the classic technique. There's something biomechanically different about distance skate. Can you, do you agree with this assessment? And uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, that's an interesting, interesting point. I think that's, I think that's, um, I think you're totally right. And I think, I mean, that's, I don't want to say well accepted, but it, it is, I think that phenomenon is kind of, is kind of uh, known. Um, I think that to be a good sprinter, you need an incredible amount of uh, upper body power. Um, and that translates to, that translates to classic more than skating. Um, I think skating, like, I mean, 
I know a, a lot of people feel the same way. I always felt like skating, skating takes more just pure aerobic power. I mean, your legs are working a lot harder all the time in skating. That's the thing is you never, you can never turn it off. Where in classic, you can, you can, you know, you're in the tracks half the time you're double pulling half the time you're tucking on the downhill. And so your legs are the big movers, you know, the big muscles and they take most of the oxygen. And so, um, if you can just, you know, like in classic, you can double nowadays, you know, we're double pulling the stuff that we used to stride. And so you, you, and, and double pulling is very, very leg intensive as well, but it's just a little bit less. So I think that little bit of margin, um, skating, like the guys who are the guys who are just the pure distance skate animals. I mean, those are the, those are the fittest dudes out there. I mean, because it just for pure, you know, for pure aerobic long distance, um, kind of stuff. So I think that upper body power obviously comes into play in sprinting in skate sprinting. You need it. You're way up high. You're hitting your poles super hard. Um, and that translates well. I mean, you see some of the, some of the best world cup sprinters, you know, going to these marathon races, these classic, classic marathon races and doing really well because, uh, it's just a lot of upper body and you need a really strong core and a strong foundation legs and glutes and everything to kind of support that, that power that goes through your poles. So, um, I think that's, I think classic is a little bit more slightly more skewed maybe to upper body power than, than skating. So that might be why. I think there's a, another aspect of it. I, I, I don't know. I believe that skater can probably, a sprinter can probably learn to skate distance skate better if they focus really hard on using their legs with basically straight legs um trying to be super efficient um i think a, a, a sprinter biomechanically is such that they can burn those matches really really fast yeah and it's skating use so much leg strength but i've observed claybone he's obviously not a pure sprinter he's just a phenom but he's obviously the best sprinter yeah but if you watch him in an individual start skate race or um, where he's skiing head to head against other people in a distance skate race. And you just focus on him. He looks like he's barely moving. Mm-hmm. He looks like he's doing a distance ski. And then you pull back and you look at other people and you're like, oh my gosh, he's flying. Cause like someone next to him, let's say Dennis Spitzoff. Yeah. <laughs> always looks like he's going a thousand miles an hour. Yeah. Efficient. You see him skiing next to Claybo in a distance skate race. And you look at Spitzoff and you're like, oh my gosh, they're doing like 22 minutes for a 10 K yeah. and like, he looks like he's doing a distance ski. Yeah. It's just so much, so efficient. He's using, he's not using his knee joint at all. It's all hips. It's right. all straight legs and hips. So he's not, he's not accessing those, those muscles so he can burn those matches. You right. Know? Um, so I think there's a, a technical aspect to this as well, but um, yeah, definitely. And every, I think about everybody's like, like I have just never been quite as efficient in skating. I, I learned how to go very fast in skating, but I I was just never as efficient. So yeah, the distance skate races just killed me. I mean, but someone like take someone like Simi, like he's one of the, he's one of like the technically best, I mean, he's amazing skate skier. And so, I mean, he can sprint in both techniques. I mean, he can obviously ski both techniques very well, but he sprints very well in both techniques. And he has some, had some really incredible distance races in skating. Um, because he's just, he's just naturally. So yeah, I mean, I think he's a pretty efficient skater for as far as, you know, sprinters go. That's my point. I think for a sprinter to excel in skate distance, they need to basically throw out their skate sprint technique and come and especially from the waist down, think about skiing with straight legs as an upright as possible 
and not accessing those muscles that can just just chew through that energy. Yeah. I always, I have like two mental thoughts about skating. Like when I think about skate, you know, if it was like 15 K or 30 K skate, like, I'm just like, Oh gosh, because I know how I, I know how I feel during those races. And I'm just like hanging on for dear life. And I feel like I'm flopping around. I'm just plodding. And it's like, this is so I'm, this is so bad. But then when I think about skate sprinting, I love it, you know, cause I'm like, Oh yeah. Boom, boom, boom. Like super fast. Your skis yeah. are on the ground. You know, you're just hammering every jump yeah. skating, everything. I'm like, Oh, it's amazing. I love skating. And then when I think about a long race, I'm like, Oh, I hate skating. <laughs> so for me, there's like a, there's like a very strong, like on off switch. Like I'm either, I'm either going level five and it's awesome or I'm just dying, you know? So I want to talk about 2018, um, not just the games, but actually the national championship, national championship races, which was more or less Olympic trials as well. That was held in Anchorage mm -hmm. in January, 2018. You won both sprint events, and from my perspective, in clear fashion, I was never in doubt watching the heats and the final that you were going to – I was sure you were going to win. <laughs> Maybe you weren't, but it sure looked like to me that you had the capacity and you were totally in form and you were going to win those races. Uh, you also qualified very well, finishing first and third, which, of course, qualifying was heavily weighted for Olympic qualification. Yep. You lived and trained in Anchorage at the time. And this was also the week where your brother Logan qualified. Can you please talk about this very special week? Yeah, that was, that was a big one. I mean, you know, uh, obviously from 2014 to there, I had, you know, had, I was still racing. It was four years later. Um, I had, I'd be lying if I said, you know, making the Olympic team wasn't a massive part of um, ski racing, you know, up to that point. And so, yeah, I mean, you're basically going into that week. I remember the week out, uh, you know, you basically really like, you know, not a week, I mean, month out. You're basically like, this is, this is my career. My career is my, as a sprinter, my career hangs on that one qualifier. You know, it could, I could be, I could come away with this. I could come away from this event ecstatic. Um, and I could be, a 10th of a second shy and I could come away from this event, just devastated. You know, I would have not made my goal. And um, yeah, it was intense. I mean, it, you know, you're, you're trying to keep this level head and this, this headspace where you're focused, but not nervous. And, you know, you, cause you know that you, when you ski the best is when you're just kind of like carefree and you can send it and you don't have too much pressure and you don't get, you know, get inside yourself too much. Um, so you're trying to balance that with also, also all what it's going to take to win these races that everybody else is trying to win too. You know, everybody's peaking for, for this, this week and you know, your skis have to be on point and you have to, yeah. So it was intense. I mean, uh, my wife, Jessica, my wife Je will joke about like, she, I mean, she was so nervous that week, like, you know, I don't know, just cause, cause you know, and your family's carrying that for you and, uh, it was kind of interesting because Logan and I were both basically trying to make the team. And at that, at that point, everybody thought there was one spot for the sprint, one more spot to make. Uh, so we, you know, we basically were like, yeah, we're competing against each other. Um, it was Logan and I, and a, there were probably three or four other sprinters who were in the mix to make that, make that team, make that last spot. And so it was basically like, yeah, we're competing against each other for the one spot and someone's going to go big and someone's going to go home. And so, yeah, it was, I mean, it wasn't weird. You know, we, we had kind of talked about it a little bit, just like, I mean, 
it, you know, basically it was like, if I, if I don't win, I hope you win, you know, <laughs> but, but, you know, you're both like, well, I, yeah, I still kind of hope I win, you know? And, and he's like, thanks. Yeah. Long silence. Yeah. <laughs> like, Are you going to say the same thing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, no, it was good. I mean, that, that was a really, uh, kind of pivotal point for me in my life. Uh, I actually, um, learned how to be, I actually was like at peace, I would say. And I, I, um, I was, I, prayed quite a bit going into that that week and I had really just given it up I had said you know look like I don't know I don't know what the plans for me are um I hope you know I hope to make the team I've worked super hard for this but if I don't like I realize it's not the end of the world it's not the end of my life um you know I'm there's more to me than just making this team but I would you know I would love to make this team I'm going to do everything I can to do that um and yeah, I mean, it went really well. I had a lot of friends and family there and, you know, our team APU was super, super dialed, um, you know, and we, we were just, we were humming like a well-oiled machine, you know, the, the ski testing was good. And I had practiced on that course a lot and I had mentally focused on that. And I had, I had pushed myself. That was a big hill. That was a huge, huge, long, steep hill for a sprint course in the U S. Um, and so I had trained and I knew that, you know, year in advance or whatever. And I had trained with that in mind, you know, and I had prepared for that type of course and that kind of finish and all that stuff. So, uh, yeah, it was a big week. I mean, it was very, I think I got sick immediately after that week because your body just releases, like, you know, I, I your body was just like, knows that it can't get sick it has to be on its a game and then afterwards it was the, the, the stress from that was so high um that it just kind of releases and it's like all right we're <laughs> we made it through that so um yeah it was cool i mean in the end it was such a it was a huge blessing that we had not foreseen uh logan and i both ended up making the team um for the sprint and it it, it uh it was a really it was a affirmation um for me of of just of not trying to be in control and, and realizing that I wasn't in control. I could only control the things that I could control. There was way too much else um, that impacted it and that I, that I couldn't control. So um, I tried to do everything I could and, and that's all I could do. And yeah, it worked out, worked out well. So I think personally, I mean, when you hear, you hear champions being interviewed after big events, someone might, they, you know, someone might say something like, it never occurred to me, but I wouldn't win or, you know, I, how important it was or something i i what you're saying really resonates with me i think it's it allows you to focus very much when you accept that you're not in control when you have to have some faith you know let's say let's say you turn to god and say hey um i'm in your hands i understand this and i'll do everything i can to achieve this but i can live with it whatever happens i can live with it or if you're not of faith you can say i i there are things out of my control someone can wipe me out um, something can happen. I can have bad ski, you know, whatever. If something is out of my control. And then you accept that and then focus on what you can control without fear, because you know that you'll need a little luck. You'll know that anything can happen. And it seems to give you a more level-headedness and better focus as compared to the opposite, which is I have to try to control everything. You're all high strung and you're nervous because you're not in control. You know what I mean? I think that's really 
healthy and important to have that out outlook. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I wish I had, I wish I had uh, gotten to that point much earlier in my career. I mean, it, you know, early in my career, I could say it was defined by trying to control everything. And um, yeah, I got, I got to a point in, in my faith where I, I realized that I was not in control and I was okay with it. And that's really tough. That's really tough to get to. I struggle with that every day. Um, but realizing that, um, you know, I'm just a small player and it's, it's not all about me. And I, I may want to do this or that or make that team, but maybe that's not the plan that, that I believe God has for me. So, uh, and then, yeah, it gives, it gives you an incredible amount of clarity and motivation to do what you can and to say, Hey, look, if I'm here and I'm in the, I'm in the shape of my life and I've trained for 15 years to be here and you know, I've got the skis and I've got everything I need, then like, I better go out and make the most of this, you know? Um, so yeah, it, it helped me a lot. I think it's, I think it's, uh, I think it's in a, a lesson that, that will stick with me. And um, I think it's, I think it's, yeah, I think it's important. Cool. I agree. So um, have you got, you, you, as I mentioned, you skied Olympics, you've skied 36 different starts internationally, World Cups, Olympics, et cetera. You've had a lot of ex race experiences. Do you have any other favorite race memories or experiences that you would like to share? Yeah, I mean, racing Holman Colon, uh, for me, the 50K in Oslo, that was like one of the more memorable um, ones just because it's so epic. I mean, I wasn't, let's see, that was, uh, that was that year. That was 2014. So I, after I'd made the, missed the Olympic team or not been named the Olympic team and then, I was winning the super tour. So I went, got to do all the, all the world cups after that. Um, yeah. So Holman Cohen's crazy, you know, the parties and they're like throwing hot dogs at you and yelling your name. And you're like, how do these people know my name? You know, it's like, Oh, cause they're Norwegians, you know? <laughs> so, and they're like locked in on the, on the world cup scene. So doing Holman Cohen was sick. Uh, uh, I mean, going, going to Turkey, I went to Turkey for under 23s. Um, forget what year that was that was like 2000 probably 12 uh that was pretty epic um I was pretty young you know and and there were a number of people who were on that trip who are still skiing my brother I got to go with my brother and uh you know Turkey was crazy I mean that was not you know we go to you go to Scandinavia and Central Europe all the time and it's kind of kind of all blends together but when you go to like a completely different place like Turkey you know a Muslim culture and very different demographics than what you're used to uh that was very memorable and yeah i mean lots of fun trips on you know scandal cups and opa cups and um with some great people and uh i don't know it's just a, it's really it's a cool it's a cool experience to get to get to experience those different places and to uh see yeah see 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 what the world you know get outside our little bubble and see what the world's like out there Absolutely. It's, it's funny, you know, looking back at a career, despite all that training, all that racing, all those hyper intense moments, sometimes what we remember the most is the cultural experiences. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the pain of some of those races is still, I still can sure. feel it. I, I still, uh, I wake up every night, like, 
you know, it's not really a nightmare, but you have those like dreams that kind of like start going poorly and I'll wake up and I'm like, I was, I was like at a bit, I was at a world cup and I was like running to the race start. And I was like, I didn't have my skis and I was like going to miss my start, you know, like that's like still in my psyche, you know, yeah, of course. <laughs> Um, it never happened, but I think I, so apparently there's some like subconscious fear of that, but, uh, well, yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I just think back to all of the, all of the time spent like working so hard. I mean, training so hard, all this, like how many hours, you know, out in the rain, roller skiing and driving to here to go training in the morning. And, um, yeah, it's just kind of, sometimes it's, you know, it's, it's kind of a weird thing looking back on it, like wow, I poured a lot into that, you know, and it, and I, it, it is what it, it's, it's what it took, you know, and, um, it's what it, it's like anything in life. Like you want to be really good at something. It's gonna, it's gonna take a lot of work and it's going to take all the not, the not fun stuff. You know, it's, it's not glamorous most, I mean, 99% of the time it's not glamorous, you know, and, um, that's a good, I try to remind myself that, you know, cause people are like, oh man, it's like, every, you know, people want to talk about skiing and racing and the Olympics. And it's like, no one wants to like ask you about your 7am bounding workout in the mud. You know, it's just, no one, no one cares. <laughs> you know, the, there's an aspect that is cool about it, even though it's not glamorous, but I'm in my fifties and I still dream sometimes about missing my start or losing <laughs> my start number before the start, you know, or all these things that, that, um, that people might dream about, you know, nightmare wise during the peak of their career, but I'm in my fifties. And those dreams, it's not like a Wasatch Citizen Series race or West Yellowstone Rendezvous. I'm in the World Cup doing yeah, that. Yeah, it's a know? big one. I'm yeah. in my 50s and I'm still in the World <laughs> Cup trying to find my bib before the start, panicking because I'm going to miss my start. Yeah. I'm grateful for that. I'm, I'm, to me, it's kind of like I'm still alive and kicking and vibrant and I'm still connected to that racer. I'm, I'm a racehorse. No matter how old I get, I'm going to be a racehorse still, you know? Yeah. And I love it. I love that. And so it's kind of cool still feeling that way. I think it's a really valuable thing to learn. I mean, I, now, now I am working more in the business realm and, and working with companies and clients and stuff. And it's like, uh, the things that I learned being a ski racer, the mental, the mental tactics, you know, the perseverance, the, the ability to dig in and just work hard, um, because you believe it's going to produce something down the road, um, is, is something that is really hard you know, it's hard to learn it to that level. Um, skiing is a great way to, great way to learn that. And, um, it, it, it doesn't, you know, it, it really is going to serve anybody well. And I think it's that same competitive nature, you know, the one that you're talking about where we're like, we're, you know, we may be for years past our career. We're still like still in it and we're still living it because we, we, uh, we're passionate about it and we're, fiery competitive people and i think that i think that can translate to other things too there's two comments on that and i'm loving this conversation i've said this to, for years cross-country skiers especially elite cross-country ski racers they're not normal people they're superhuman and here are a couple examples number one you're you're in uh, you're in the desert or you're in alaska wherever you're driving along and you're not prepared for whatever reason your car breaks down and you're you're there you have no cell service and you're you're done you're right yeah to one of us it's like well no big deal i'll just run to the next town right. however far it is i'll figure it out i can do it you know no big deal like i can do it i don't need some you know to make smoke signals and have some kind of helicopter or whatever note you know right. I, I can take care of it i can just run yeah. for if i need to i'll run for 20 hours 
right. and I'll get to wherever I'm going and then and I'll lick my wounds and I'll, <laughs> I'll eat a pizza and I'll be good, you know? Right. The other one is in work. I'm, I'm, I, you know, I work hard. I have a lot of responsibility and sometimes I can't sleep because I'm not sure I'm going to get it all done. Yeah. What I do, it's an empowering attitude is, well, no big deal then. If I can't sleep, then I'm going to go to the office. So yeah. sometimes I'll go to the office and I'll start work at three in the morning. This isn't a regular thing. This is when I can't sleep because I'm not right. sure I'm going to get all my work done. I'll just say, well, fine. You don't want to sleep. Don't sleep. Go to the office. That's the reason why you can't sleep. And I'll start my work at 3 right. a.m. And I'll work until I'll be able to sleep, which means I do like a week's worth of work from 3 a.m. Yeah. to 5 p.m. <laughs> or something. And then I'll sleep like a baby the next night because I got my work done and I'm right. caught up and it's good. You know, yeah. like there's no victim mentality. There's no nothing. It's like, OK, I got something to do. I'll just go and do it, knock it out and, you know, uh, slay that demon kind of a thing. And then, yeah. you know, no big yeah. deal. That's a cross-country ski elite racers mentality that, that will serve me and you our entire existence. Yeah. Yeah. The ability, I think the ability to suffer, the, the, willing, the willingness to suffer in the short term for something long term, I think is, a, is, is one of the core principles of being a successful skier. And exactly. I think that's something that uh, I have found translates to real life very well. Uh, whether that's in my relationship with my wife, you know, we got married and it, the first year is hard, man. It's like, you got this new person, you're all of a sudden you're living exactly. together and it's like, everything's new and your communication styles don't mesh up and you don't like the same, you know, some things you don't like at the same time. And it's like, oh my gosh, like, this is, this is crazy. Like how, this is so hard, but it's like, no, I mean, yeah, it's hard, but I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to quit. I mean, what, you know, like, I'm used to things being hard, like things that are hard usually produce fruit down the road, you know? So that's fine. I'm ready for it. Um, so I think that, I think that that's a core principle of skiing that, that is, uh, I mean, I don't want to date myself too much, but you know, like, I don't think, I don't think as many young kids these days, like get that, get that lesson they don't learn that lesson. We don't have that many opportunities to learn that lesson. Um, suffering is kind of seen as a bad thing, you know? And I mean, you don't want to suffer like obviously forever, but like intentional suffering because you're going to like put in the work. And um, yeah. Reese, I agree with you. I think that's the, as much fun as cross country skiing can be, cross skiing and sprinting and floating along through the woods and on fast skis, et cetera. As much fun as that is, one of the core lessons is hard work equals progress. Yeah. You know, if you do it right, that's that's a and that's going to serve us for our lives. You mentioned how cross country being having had invested and learned as an elite cross country ski racer helped you in your marriage. Someone might be listening to this and say, that's ridiculous. I had a friend not too long ago tell me he was having problems with his wife in their marriage and she was thinking of leaving him. And I said, do you love her? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, how do you show her that? And he's like, well, you know, hard, this and that. And I said, hey, does she like massage? And he's like, yeah. I'm like, give her an hour long massage every day for the next month. At the end right. of the month, she'll be wanting to have your baby. You know, like, yeah. like no problem, <laughs> marriage solved, marriage crisis solved. You know, like that's, it's easy. If you love her and you've got the moment, you know, you really want to stay together and you screwed up time and time again and you need to make things right, then you make things right. It's no big deal. Right. That's that's the pay, the price you pay and you get what you're looking for because you love her. 
You know, right. I totally think that this translates into good marriage if you wanted to. Yeah. And, you know, you could say, well, like you, the, the first reaction would be, oh, man, that's a lot of massage. That sounds hard. I don't want to do that. Yeah. Well, I don't want to do those bounding intervals every week either. But you know that it's that's what you need to do. You know, like in so just because it's hard doesn't mean, you know, I mean, good things are hard. That's why they're that's why they're good. They're rare. They're it's it's hard to make the junior national team. It's hard to make the Olympic team. It's hard to be, you know, married for 50 years because not everybody can do it. <laughs> the, the, the thing isn't like people like like we are. We don't we're not scared of hard work. So the question is, what is our desire? Do you want to be a champion? Yes. Okay. So that means you need to do these things. Do you want to have a good marriage? Yes. Okay. That means you need to do these things. And look, when it's, when it's put to us that way, it's easy because we want those things and doing those things is uh, it's kind of like training for skiing. It brings us joy and, 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 you know, enjoy the journey kind of a thing. It's, it's no big deal. We like it. Yeah. It's cool. Yeah. It's very empowering being a, yeah. being a, a skier that's learned from pursuit of excellence is so empowering. And that's what I tell, uh, you know, I, I worked with a lot of companies, you know, as an athlete uh, that would be my sponsors, uh, you know, nonprofit organizations. And I, I have, a, you know, a lot of my friends are still competing professionally and, and I'll give them advice about sponsorships or marketing and stuff like that. And um, I think that's one of the values of skiing, you know, and, and as an elite skier, you can take that and, and teach that to kids is, uh, you know, not to, don't be afraid of, of working hard. It's, uh, you know, and that, that doesn't mean you have to be a, like a world-class athlete in order for that to be useful to you. I mean, that don't be afraid of working hard in just normal daily things, you know, balancing your finances, you know, keeping a good relationship with your parents, you know, doing your homework, going to whatever, what X, Y, Z. Um, Cause if, you know, you put in that work and it'll, you'll, you'll be rewarded. I would even go farther than that and say, working hard is the great equalizer. If you yeah. weren't born with a silver spoon in your hand, or you weren't born some genetic freak, working hard is, is the, the key to unlock the world and your dreams yeah. to you. That's, that's yeah. it, it's the key, it's the key. If you weren't a genetic freak and you weren't born with a silver spoon in your hand, working hard is, it's the key to unlocking your dreams. Yeah, well, what else can you do? I mean, you know, there's not, there's, not mu there's not much else. So you either take control or you just let other people control you, so. Go to the corner store and buy some lottery tickets. Yeah, yeah, that would be, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, cool. I'm really enjoying this. At this point, I want to play the Winter Warrior video. We've already established that you are the Winter Warrior, and this oh, is yeah. a fun part of our little history. <laughs> At this point, I'm going to play the Winter Warrior video for, um, for the viewers and listeners. I am a Winter Warrior. I prepare for battle all year, every year. And when the leaves turn and the snow flies, my warrior spirit emerges. My battle cry is the starter's pistol. My ultimate goal is to overcome my physical limitations and soar as my warrior spirit was meant to. I am a winter warrior. It was a fun project that got some pretty good attention and built some excitement for the new line. 
we filmed and recorded that in West Yellowstone during the fall camp. Do you have any thoughts from, uh, do we have any thoughts from the Winter Warrior today about our little project and, and the whole thing it was pretty fun, I thought. Yeah, I mean, that was a good way to, that was a good fun, uh, that, that got, I think that was very successful. It got a lot of press. I had a lot of people texting me being like, man, like kind of, kind of, kind of making fun of me, you know, it was a little bit cheesy, but <clears throat> you know, Hey, that's marketing. We're trying to get, get, uh, that thing got passed around. And, um, yeah, I think it, I mean, it kind of conveyed the essence of being a ski racer. And I remember filming that with you, Ian, we were out in the woods and there was no races going on. So we had to, you know, obviously like, uh, I think we maybe there were like races happening that weekend, maybe like later you know, in the week, yeah, a couple, couple days or something. So, you know, the trails were pretty dead and we were, yeah, trying to, trying to envision, you know, envision that feeling of the, the pre-race winter warrior. But um, yeah, I mean, those gloves were sick. I still wear those camel gloves all the time. I, I don't, I've watched that video a lot and I watched it again the other day just before. And I get, I get goosebumps every time I watch it. It totally cap for me captures the essence of the struggle of oneself against oneself, you know, trying to, trying to, you know, uh, soul over body, if you will will over body um I, I get goosebumps every time i watch it i thought that was great and you did a fantastic job yeah i think thanks i i mean <clears throat> the winter warrior could live on i think that that could be a that could be a ongoing i mean nowadays you know i i envision i'm imagining that video made with a huge budget you know like you've got you got the really cinematic cameras and you got the backdrop and all the people and the crazy audio and uh yeah, I mean, but concept was was there. That was that was it. Yeah, cool. I, I'm I'm dying to talk with you about the tour to ski China. Mm. Uh, I know some other people have done it, and yeah. it's not a usually normal event. You know, it's a lot of things that are unique about it. Yeah, you, you competed in the tour to ski China after you had officially retired, but you were still training and you had that in mind. I, I know you were you weren't communicating about it beforehand, but I knew you had something cooking. Um, yeah. that year in 2019, it consisted of a skate sprint and a 50 K classic mass start. You finished second in the sprint and seventh in the marathon. And I'm wondering, first off, um, do you have anything to relate about the racing itself? We'll talk about the logistics and the, the, the superficial stuff later, yeah. but the racing itself, I'd love to hear about that. Yeah. I mean, I had not, I had no idea what to expect. Um, the racing was was really, I mean, the, the level was higher than I was expecting. Um, and they did a really good job. I mean, it was basically the lesson, one of the lessons I learned was like, China just goes all out, you know, for everything pretty much. So <clears throat> it was very, I mean, it was like run like a world cup. Uh, and it, it could have been a world cup, frankly. I mean, the, it was, it was, it was run really well. Um, the courses were really good. I mean, they go crazy on the snowmaking. So the, it was like the best, most insane snowmaking I've ever seen in my life. You know, I mean, that, that marathon course, 25 K loop, all snowmake, you know, sp you know, whatever, two, three tracks wide. Cause it was classic 25 K loop. I mean, they spread it all. Like that's a lot of snow to spread. Um, and yeah, it was, it was amazing. I mean, I, I, I was really impressed. I did a great job. It was very competitive. Uh, there's some pretty fast Chinese uh, skiers that were there as well as a bunch of the, like the Russian, um, some like pro marathon teams and the team Rozzy, uh, Rozzy gel marathon team was there. And, uh, yeah. So there were some Norwegians there. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was really fun because, 
it was all new and, you know, I didn't have much pressure, but there was, there, there was some great prize money and the competition was pretty stiff. So um, it was fun to, yeah, kind of throw down and, you know, it's like, you don't know anybody any race in the U S you're like, oh, okay, you know, that guy does this and that guy does this. And if I'm going to win, I got to do this, you know? And it was there. It was like, I don't know any of these people. I have no idea what anyone's good at. Like, I don't know who the, I don't know who the, I mean, in the marathon, you know who the big dogs are because they're there and they've got like, you know, world marathon points. And I mean, some of them are really, really fast. So, uh, but yeah, it was kind of just wing it. So were the races, I don't know where they were held. Were they held in inner Mongolia somewhere or uh, some, some years they are this year, a couple of the races got, were like canceled like months in advance due to, I don't know, some sort of political thing, I think um maybe but uh so the sprint they both of the races were basically in uh this city called Changchun, which is like northeast um and then the sprint was like another couple hours further northeast of that really close to to the uh north korea border actually so we actually my wife and i hiked up in the morning up on top of the hill and like looked out you could see you know like oh there's north korea you know so um yeah it was cool i mean it was it, it was uh like before the marathon, you know, they are like, Oh, American Olympic skier, you know? So I was kind of a little bit of a celebrity and they wanted to interview me on everything. And so I was like being interviewed on this, you know, this big news station. And I was like, I was asking the, the, the English translator, I was like, how, you know, how big is this TV station? Like, is this, is, is this a big deal? Or do you, do you guys think it's a big deal? Or they're like, Oh no, it's small television. You know? And I was like, well, how many people are watching, watch the show? And they're like, you know, seven to 8 million people or something like that. I was like, Oh yeah. Nice small Chinese television, you know? <laughs> like, Okay. Um, yeah, it was cool. It was super, super cool. So in, in races, other races in the past, they've had um, camel rides and crazy long parties yeah. that went long <laughs> into the night and, and uh, 25 hour bus rides and just a lot of uh, crazy food buffets. Yeah. What, 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 can, do you have any stories from uh, 2019? Oh yeah. We were there for the new year. Um, so the, the actual like calendar new year, uh, which is not Chinese new year, they celebrate that like a little bit later, but they still went nuts. You know, it was like, it was, I think it was the night before this. Uh, it couldn't have been the night before. I don't know, but it, I think it was before the races and there was uh, just insane, you know, fireworks, like just off the chain. And then, you know, there at the party, like the, costumes and dancing and like just these huge shows of like choreographed singers and dancers and it was like it was exactly kind of what you would expect with like an all-out you know Chinese New Year party but um yeah it was uh you know they they go they go really hard on the snow making they do uh like snow sculptures so you might have seen some of these pictures uh before the before the uh Vassalop at China yeah. which is the marathon they'll have like the start goes right by these massive like hotel building sized sculptures of snow uh these big pirate ships and dragons and stuff and you know they're 50 feet tall um <clears throat> yeah it's pretty cool yeah absolutely um i think changing changing topics i think strength training has changed a lot over the years and continues to you're a very strong and explosive skier. Can you give some specific thoughts on strength training, make recommendations and perhaps um, make a comment on what are commonly made mistakes? Yeah, strength is interesting. I, I've had different kind of beliefs about strength over my, throughout my career. Um, 
I think that you actually, you actually get a lot of natural strength from, from just skiing. Um, and you know, I went through periods where I thought I really needed to be like a power lifter, um, and have a ton of, of just pure strength and power. Uh, and I think that's, I think that can be good, but I don't, you know, when you're skiing, you're never like, you're not pushing as hard as you are when you have, you know, a couple plates on both sides of the bar. I mean, you just don't, you don't need pure squat power, uh, to be a good skater. But I think, I think that, I think it's a, it's an, it's kind of a mental and a neurological training. So you basically are training your muscles, um, to learn how to fire, to learn how to fire fast. So I, I, I focused on, you know, getting like, obviously core strength is huge. You need a lot of core strength. You need a lot of back strength. If you're going to be able to double pull like that, um, you, know, you need to have a, just a really solid upper body strength. And then I think quickness too. So kind of combined with, uh, like biometrics and, and, you know, ball throwing and stuff like that, because it, like sprinting, a lot of times it's, you need to be able to like move, make, make that movement really quickly. Um, you don't necessarily need to like push against a wall and push 5,000 pounds, but you need to, you need to be able to like push hard and very fast. Um, so I think that, I mean, there's a lot of different approaches to skiing. I mean, I've seen, I've seen like the French guys, the French team, they're like power lifters, you know, the Norwegians, they don't a lot, like most of them don't do much except for rubber bands. They do crazy core strength and just body weight stuff. So, um, there's a lot of, you know, depending on your physiology, if you're going for a, if you're going for a 50 K or a skate, a, you know, sprint, uh, <clears throat> definitely if you're a sprinter or a classic skier or a marathoner, like that upper body strength is going to be big. Cause you're going to need to push, you know, so much, so much, uh, power in, in, in the arms. So, um, you just can't double pull up those. I mean, we used to double pull those, some crazy Hills Drawman world cup sprint, Stockholm sprint. It's stuff that you would, you definitely want to be striding, but you just don't because you know, it's faster to double pull it. So yeah, you need some strength for that. Back in my day, I really believed tremendously in plyometrics. Yeah. Pretty much no cross country skier did squats or weightlifting type exercises. It was plyometrics. Around the two thousands, people started doing a lot of squats and got away from plyometrics. And it seems like in some circles, elite circles, plyometrics have come back big time and the, the speed of movement is um, more emphasized again. And it might be introduced as also as a later phase. So you've done squats earlier in the year and you're doing plyometrics later in yeah. the year. Um, but what do, you, what do you think about plyometrics in general and, and what, what they bring? So, I think, yeah, I think plyometrics are great. I mean, if you could only do one kind of strength, like if you don't have a weight set, you don't have a gym and you do, you're traveling. I used to do plyometrics when I would travel, like on the world cup or on the super tour and you don't have a weight room, you know, I would I'd grab like literally grab some milk jugs and do some squats, you know, warm up, kind of get those muscles tired and then do plyo workouts. I go outside and jump up the stairs, jump up on the curb, jump on the tailgate. Um, and I think that stuff can be really, really valuable. You're basically training your muscles to fire all at the same time. And so when you lay down the hammer, that final hill and that sprint, you know, you want, you, you, when you, you need to be able to fire everything at once, your leg, you want everything to go. Um, and so you're kind of training that. I think it's, uh, I think it's really important for that. I mean, I have a memory, a, a vivid memory. It was like, you know, we were in Fairbanks. I was still, I was probably 19, 20 maybe. And we were <clears throat> training. So it was like David Norris, myself, my brother, uh, 
and it was super cold out middle of winter, you know, and probably, I don't know, 40, 50 below. And we needed it. We hadn't, it was been, had been cold for so long. We hadn't done intensity for a while. You know, we do treadmill workouts and all this stuff. But anyway, our coach, uh, Bill had us do, we did like a plyo interval set. So it was like 10 by one minute box jumps all out, you know? <clears throat> and I remember, I remember just, I was dead. It was like, it was like so hard, you know, by the end, you're basically just like falling over onto the box. And I think like, I mean, if you, if you, if you were traveling and need some workout and you don't have any equipment, like you could just do plyo intervals and I bet you'd be, you'd stay in really good shape. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I enlisted early in the Marine Corps and that winter before I went in, I made the U.S. ski team and I was down in Marine boot camp in uh, Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, South Carolina. Jeez, Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. <laughs> I was in Marine boot camp in Paris Island. South Carolina. Later, I was in North Carolina. Yeah. I'm getting old, I guess. And um, <clears throat> we had uh, Carolinas, whatever. We had a few hours on Sunday to have personal time, and that was the one workout I would do during Marine boot camp. I'd pull out my Footlocker and do plyometrics over my Footlocker, and everyone looking at me like I was a freak in the squad bay. But um, that I agree. That's such an important workout. Yeah, and, and it's. I mean, it's. I think like skiers often get like stuck in this mentality of like we have to do this like mondays is this workout and tuesdays is intervals and wednesdays is threshold yeah. and it's just like no you don't have to do that and i mean i used to travel like you'd get stuck in a layover somewhere in some airport and it's like dude i haven't trained for two days and i have my running shoes in my backpack and like i can go for runs but i'm in the airport i'm not gonna like and i would do plyos in the airport yeah and you just get over the fact where you're like yeah i kind of look like a dork but like you find a quiet corner where there's nobody nobody around and you can do it. And it's like, I honestly think when I land and I have a world cup in four days, like I'm going to feel better because I did this and it, you can like, I'd be like, dude, I'm going to crank my heart rate up. You know, I can get, I can get to 190 doing box jumps up on this flower pot in the Amsterdam airport, you know? So, exactly. um, yeah, I think there's definitely a level of creativity. Uh, I think as I got throughout my career, like towards the end of the career, I was like willing to be more creative and I think it's really helpful. Sure. Um, I think like half of training is just like mental, you know? Yeah. So, Reese, do you have a favorite and very effective workout? A workout that's so core that you know if you do it, you're going to maintain or, or build some fitness. And I think it's especially interesting to ask you now that you've retired and you still like jumping in events and doing well here and there, but you're not willing to, it's not a priority for you. So you have to be efficient in your training. Yeah, I hate, I hate the answer to this question, but I think like if you said, hey, Reese, you got to make the Olympic team next year, 2022. You got to go to Beijing. What would I do between now and then? I would probably do hill bounding with poles. <laughs> and I, it's my least favorite. I hate it so much. Um, and I, every, essentially every time we, I did that, which was like multiple times a week for 15 years, like every one of those workouts, I basically was like, nah, I'm quitting skiing. I hate this. This is so miserable. <laughs> So, I mean, that's the one. Now, if you ask me which one do I do right now in my life with limited amount of time, it's not that because I don't like it. So I don't do, <laughs> I just go, I go hammer on my skis for like an hour. But um, yeah, I mean, I think that that is pretty core. Like if you, I mean, Eric Flory used to tell us, like if you had a, if you had an uphill running race, like from here to there, you look up at the top of the mountain and you like first, you know, 50 people down there and like, okay, first one to the top of the mountain, 
basically like the results of, of that race would be pretty closely correlated to like results of cross country ski races. Yeah. Um, maybe sprinting, not so much, but like distance for sure. I mean, the guys who win the distance races, like they would be the first one to the top of the mountain. So yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately for people like me, see, I grew up like, I was like training with like Scott Patterson and David Norris and like these guys who were just absolute freaks, you know? And there's just like, I'm like, oh, I'm, I suck so bad. I'm so bad at uphill running. And I'm really, I'm not that bad. Like in the, in the, I'm in the, you know, quarter percentile. I'm at the very, very top of the heat, but like, they're just so fat. They're so good that it's, uh, it was often demoralizing, but I got over that. So we were talking before about how cross country skiing kind of prepares you for life and all the different lessons it, it's, it's taught us. How was yeah. it returning to school? Do you find that the work ethic and focus required to become an elite ski racer were skills that you were able to apply to your schooling as well? Yeah, I, I, I always thought it was funny. We'd be, you'd be sitting in these classes. You know, I mean, I was in my junior and senior year engineering classes. So um, they were getting pretty hard, you know, and it was uh, you're sitting with all these engineers. And you've been maybe you've been in this class and then this lab and then that class. And people are like, oh, this is so hard. I, I can't take this anymore. I'm leaving. You know, I, I got to get out of here. This is so bad. And I'm like, you guys, this is so easy. Like you're sitting in a in a heated room. You've got food and water and like you, you're on your computer watching like baseball games on the side. Like this is not hard, like compared to, you know, <laughs> compared to bounding in the mud. Like when you're when you're you can't even see straight because you're in so much pain. It's like this is so chill come on, you guys. So, um, yeah, I think, I mean, it was, it was tough, you know, I mean, a lot of late nights of studying and I was running my company at the same time and I was still training for like tours to China and stuff. So that was a really busy two years. Uh, I mean, it, I, I just graduated a year ago. So, um, but yeah, I mean, that was kind of the same thing. You know, I was like, I'm going to put in the work. This is kind of, this kind of sucks right now. Uh, but it'll be done and I'm going to get, I'm going to get something out of it that I want. So, um, yeah, but it was fun. I mean, you know, mentally getting back in the game and I, you know, I, I'm competitive. So I view everything as a competition. So every test is like you're getting ready for a race, you know, and you got to do all your stuff. But um, yeah, I think, I think it was, I think it helped me a lot. It made it, it made it quite, I remember, I remember college when I first started after high school, I was like, God, oh, this is so hard. You know, I hate this. And now, you know, coming back, it's like, nah, this isn't that hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So here's a kind of a, maybe a difficult question for you, but uh, I look at life as chapters sometimes. Almost two years ago, you exited the full-time athlete chapter and entered mm -hmm. what I call the I got to get my stuff together chapter. <laughs> where you're married, right. you're married, you're preparing for fatherhood, you're establishing yourself as quickly and as well as you can. When I retired, it was the same thing. I retired at the peak of my abilities because I, I had gotten married and I felt a need to establish myself as a man, let's say, and not just yeah. as a steer. You seem to be very well prepared in a number of areas and you could go in a number of directions. You have a mechanical engineering degree, which represents an open door to a rewarding career. You have a, your PR marketing firm, Ophira Group. Is that, did I pronounce it for, properly? Yep, yep. Which you've been running full-time and you have this travel service startup. What direction do you expect to go in and what do you see yourself doing in 10 years? Mm. Oh man, <clears throat> if I knew that. Um, yeah, I always thought like in high school and stuff, I mean, I loved science and math and I was a pretty good student. I always thought I was going to be an engineer. 
when I was in high school, my goal was to like go to college and ski on a scholarship and get my engineering degree and then go be an engineer. And so that was kind of when I made that departure of like, Hey, I'm going to ski full time. That was like, Whoa, you're like giving up your engineering dream, you know? And, uh, yeah, it was a little bit, a little scary, but, um, so I told myself, I told myself I would finish my engineering degree. Um, I had started my marketing company while I was ski racing actually as a way to support myself. Um, and I had learned a lot of skills through being an athlete that were translating really well to marketing. Um, and I love learning. I kind of love that stuff. So I dived into it and I was, I was, I was making decent money, you know, while I was ski racing, uh, running my, running my marketing company. Uh, and I thought, you know, once I went back and got my, so I was like, eh, maybe I don't even need to get my degree. Um, maybe I won't use it. You know, but I said, no, like you're already like basically three quarters of the way through this thing. Obviously you, you put, you already paid all the money to do it. Like you better finish and get that piece of paper. And if you ever want to do it, you can, uh, so then I basically, you know, I, I graduated and I kind of decided, okay, am I going to go, I took some engineering, uh, you know, interviews kind of thing. I was just kind of trying to feel it out. And I felt like I had a lot of potential in the marketing space, um, you know, being able to put myself into that kind of full time and focus on that and growing and growing my team. And uh, I was, you know, having quite a bit of success. And so I just, you know, yeah, it was kind of an interesting decision. Like, do I, do I really, am I going to go be an engineer or am I going to kind of pursue this thing, which is a lot less sure. I mean, I have you know, I work for myself. I have to run everything. I have to get, you know, generate all my own revenue and get my own clients and keep them. And I have no retirement. I have no benefits. I have no health insurance. So, uh, it was a little scary. I mean, a little bit, but, um, yeah, it was going well enough. And I, I, I see a lot of potential. There's a lot of potential for growth and we've been growing uh, quite a bit. So, uh, that's the direction that I'm kind of focused on now is, is doing marketing. Um, I, I love it. It's fun. Every day is something new and it's, kind of big picture stuff. Um, it's yeah. So that's where I'm at now. And I mean, I have my engineering degree and if I want to be an engineer, then maybe I will, but, um, yeah, for now I'm loving, loving this and working on some other, yeah, I got some other maybe businesses in the pipeline too. So cool. Super. That sounds great. It's nice to have options and all of your options are very good. It seems so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it is a blessing for sure. And, uh, it's, you know, obviously COVID this year has been kind of crazy for everybody. So it's been really, um, you know, I, I, early on, I focused on learning, uh, learning skills, high, high revenue skills, like skills that, that companies would pay a lot for. Um, and I, so I said, why don't I learn those and get really good at those and learn as many of those as I can. So I can combine those into a package, you know, for uh, like a marketing package. Um, and you know, through COVID that's become even more valuable because that's the kind of stuff that, that companies need now. They need more than ever is a way to, you know, with less, less foot traffic, less events, less in-person stuff going on. They need modern marketing methods. So um, it has worked out. Yeah, pretty well. Yeah, for sure. Let me ask you a different question. Um, but I know you've got a, a good perspective on this. The journey as an elite cross-country skier in the United States is quite different from that of a European. In Europe, the events are close by. There are events that are one level below World Cups that one can also use to test oneself, gain experience and progress. And progress. And there are also events one step below those. There is a ladder of opportunity that exists for one to climb while traveling far less, spending more time around one support network, family, home, coaches, work, friends, etc., and while spending far less money. As much as the U.S. has progressed, this truly still is a European sport at the World Cup level. What are your thoughts on this? 
Yeah, I think that's a fundamental challenge for U.S. skiing. I mean, we're we're huge geographically. You know, our biggest our biggest and most successful like elite clubs are literally thousands of miles apart. I mean, I don't even how far is it from Alaska to Vermont? You know, I mean. <laughs> So it's, yeah, it's insane. I mean, the, the race schedule is insane. You go from the East coast to Alaska to the West coast. It's, it's, uh, I think that will always be, I mean, that's just going to be something that we're going to, I don't know, have to have to overcome by even being more savvy and training harder. And, um, it's tough. I mean, I think it's really tough to motivate kids to, to stay in the sport and to do the sport and, you know, people, I mean, you look at it's, like, I mean, early on in my career, I, you know, I was, I was kind of running a business and I was like, you know, I'm interested in financial kind of stuff. And I was thinking, this is such a bad idea. Like this makes no sense. I mean, I'm going to work so hard. I'm going to make no money. I'm going to not put anything in my retirement. You know, early on, I was not able to put like anything in my retirement. I was, you know, renting a place and I like couldn't have paid for any family members. And I was having very little savings and, you're, you're just anything you raise is going straight out the window. And it's like, why would you do that? Like, you know, but people always tell me like, man, if you were that good and imagine if you were that good in basketball, you know, it's like, yeah, I mean, I, I wish like if you were the number four person in the U S in any other sport, um, you could make a career out of it and you just can't make a career out of skiing. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a way you're not going to support your family at it. And, um, so it's, it's, it's just tough because you've got to be young. You got to be single, you got to be selfish. And that's kind of the only way to be good at it. Um, if I contrast what you're seeing with someone, let's say he's, he's growing up an hour outside of Munich in the German Alps, it's like, um, an hour drive to hour to two hour drive, probably an hour drive only to pretty much anywhere in the Dolomites in the German speaking Alps. Yeah. And an hour and a half to part of the French Alps. He's working and living at home and training at home. Got very few travel, no travel expenses whatsoever. You just jump in a car and go to an event. And and you can you can race, let's say, German Cup races. And when you get to a certain level, you go to what used to be called the Europa Cup races, now they're Opa Cup or Alpa Cup races. And you get to a certain level and you go to World Cup races. Yeah. And, and you can also, let's say you're a sprinter. Now you go to Europe and there are two sprint races in the next month. And that's, those are, those are your opportunities to make the world championship team or right. to, to make the red group two in a month. Whereas if you're living in Germany, let's say, for example, and, and you're in the time of year where the world cups and events are in central Europe, you, you drive for an hour in the car, you do your sprint race yeah. and you drive home and you didn't have to invest two months of travel, not to mention of funding, not to mention being away from your support network and your loved ones and your job. I mean, it's a, it's a completely different situation. It's yeah. kind of like if the World Cup was in Alaska. Right. All the races are in Alaska and you just need to get from one event to the other. And, you know, what, what a different world that would be. How much yeah. less expensive, how much more of a balanced life you'd have, less sacrifices. It's amazing the difference when you think about it. Yeah, it's crazy. And I mean, you know, at a, at a yeah, it, it's, it's crazy. And, you know, the U.S. basically like fundamentally we're, we're on a different um, if you want to think about it, like incentive system. So the reason that people ski race in the U.S., I mean, we like like the Olympic cycle, like sports in the U.S., basically like non major league sports, they kind of like operate on a four year cycle. Right. So it's like every four years is an Olympics and the Olympics is the biggest, baddest show on Earth. And if you win an Olympic medal, like 
you go straight to the top, you know, and, and we've seen that with Jesse and Keegan. And if you, you know, so like we are, we're like, we're like highly incentivized to make it to the top by, you know, financially, socially, all these things, but it's really hard if you're not at that level, right. Where like in Europe, it's much more level. I mean, they, they go nuts when you win a world cup and they go nuts when you win an Olympic medal. But th- you know, the, the difference between those is much smaller when the U S it's like, nobody cares if you won a world cup, like if you win an Olympic medal, you're a hero. So, you know, there's that it's, it's like in Europe, there's more consistency and there's, it's just much more of a, um, like us, I feel like is much more of a, like go big or go home type mentality where you either like, I'm going to be a ski racer and I'm going to spend all this money and I'm going to travel and I'm going to like have no friends and go have no social life and quit school and like all this stuff in order to try to make it big because it's, that's kind of the best way to do it. There's not, it's, it's hard to do it without doing that. Where in Europe, you can just like kind of be, you know, they like some people have jobs and they live at home and they, they maybe they own in a condo or something and they, yeah, you just drive around. And I, when I was, when I was ski racing, I would raise 40 to 50 grand a year personally, myself from sponsors. I had to, to pay my expenses. I'd go to the world cup and write the check, write a check to the U S ski team to be racing at the world cup. And I had to raise that money. You pay my rent, pay my gas, pay my, exactly. pay, pay my airplane fees, pay my, you know, I track my baggage fees. I'd pay three grand a year in baggage fees just for my skis and that you have to. And another interesting point about that is your sponsors are pretty much all Alaska based. The key part of your career that you're fundraising for is in Europe. Right. So, like what, and, and how much TV time are you actually getting in Alaska while you're in Europe per, competing in those races where let's say you got some decent German World Cup skier. He's competing in Germany, France, Italy, little Austria, maybe Switzerland, you know, those Alpine Cup and as well as a little bit of Norway, Sweden. And, and the races are on TV. And even if they're not, people know about the races because they're half an hour down the street. Right. They're a big deal. And the sponsors see it a value because it's like a half hour away. Yeah. We're not talking from Alaska to, to right. freaking, uh, Val de Feme, right. what, you know, 7,000 miles away or 10,000 miles away. I mean, with no, with no connection there, you know? Yeah. So the fundraising would be much easier because the relate that, you know, you're, you're related to it. it's a half an hour away. Right. It's a whole different world. And, and then you don't have, you don't have a 10th of the expenses if you're living over there. Right. That's an interesting yeah, thing and- we're setting up ourselves up for. Yeah. Yeah. You know, as a sponsor, so sponsors care about like, they want to, they want to impact their market. Right. Right. So like when you talk about markets, like where's a market, like a, a, like a a regional business in Alaska, like their market is maybe South central Alaska or all of Alaska. Right. And, and so they will, they may sponsor you based on the value that you bring to them within that market. So if you're racing, yeah, in Europe, I mean, they could care less. Honestly, most of them could care less. The value to them is like what you do maybe over there in Europe or in the lower 48 or in Vermont that then brings value to their market. So like when you're, uh, when you go to an event or you're in the paper in Alaska or, you know, whatever your region may be, like that's where their value is. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to convey. People just don't get, like, people don't know what the world cup is i mean that's and it, there's a little bit of uh you can kind of f- i figured that out people you know like some most 
the general public is, doesn't care whether or not you win a World Cup or win an Alpen Cup. They don't know the difference. Right. So if, you know, you can, you can kind of use that to your advantage. And, and, you know, if you're, if you're having some success and then you can figure out how to translate that to like, how does this affect my sponsor in their market? Like how am I valuable to them? Exactly. In Anchorage, Alaska, then, then, then you, then you bring value and then that's how you can raise money. And that's can be very effective. I figured that out in the last five years of my career. That's that, that can work very well, but. The point I'm trying to make though, is as good as you, as well as you did with that, if someone's living, let's say in the, in, in, in Central Europe, in, a, in a, an Alpine area, yeah, they need a 10th of money because right. the events are just around the corner. You know, they need at the most a 10th of money and they can be probably 10 times as effective and bring value to their sponsors because these big events that are the most important events are a half an hour down the street. Are right there. Yeah, yeah. totally. So they can, they can fundraise 10 times as much and they need a tenth the money, right? That you know, yeah. we're, we're in a situation plus, where we need, plus their we need, national plus their national team is more funded. So it's like, yeah, yeah it's just, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's not just a European sport in that you know traditionally Europeans cross country ski, etc. But it's also European sport in that all the biggest events are generally in Europe, and that's where the money for those events comes from, the sponsorships, etc. And when the right. attention's from and the media attention is at, which makes it even more difficult for us. To, to spend all that money traveling and sacrificing to be over there and to try to find value to our potential sponsors who are located 10,000 miles away and don't know anything about the, the events. It's, it's a really tricky thing that we're trying to do here. Yeah. And I think it's, I mean, it's, it, you know, it's really too bad because I do know, I know athletes, you know, as an American athlete, like I remember we used to make decisions about where to go, what races to go to based on the cost. And I mean, that's, that's a good lesson for life. Like you need to learn how to like, you know, balance your books and what finances mean and you can't just spend anything you want. But, but like, I know people like right now, elite athletes who do not go to races at, at the world cup level because of the cost. And that's, I mean, that's crazy. Like imagine being like, oh yeah, I'm the seventh best football player in the u.s i'm not going to go there because i can't like i can't go to that game because it's too expensive it's like what in the world like i mean and it's 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 brutal so imagine like the trickle down like if, if that person who's made it if they're at the top and they can't go because of the cost like imagine who's not going to who's not going to pursue a ski racing career like who's not going to push through and train and try to make the you know like there's so many kids who are just gonna be like no this is a bad decision why would i do this but that that's really what a lot of people talk about when they say this is a European sport. Yeah. As compared to an American sport, no problem. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a difficult thing that we're trying to undertake and we are becoming more of a European or a, of a Nordic country, but it doesn't change the fact that the events and the money are still in Europe. Yeah. And I will say, I'll take this chance to, to shout out like, like NNF. I mean, they've been huge. They were, they started like way at the start of my career. Yep. Um, and they were huge for me. I mean, they, they came through and they, pay, you know, they were paying for trips and for coaches and for wax tax and stuff. And like that kind of thing, I, like, I definitely want to give them credit. Um, because that when you're 17, like, you know, when I made world juniors, like I paid for that trip and I paid, I had mowed lawns and worked at a bike shop and that's how I paid for that trip, you know? And 
you know, so when they're, when, when you're like 19 years old and they're like, Hey, we're going to pay for a thousand dollars worth of your trip. You're like, Oh my gosh, like the heavens have opened, you know, like this is amazing. Right. Yeah. And it's not that much money, but it helps you a lot. And so I'm thankful for them. And I, I do uh, like now, like the Davis U S cross country ski team, like that family, I think they've helped out the team tremendously. I know like my brother, for example, he's on the B team. Uh, you know, and he's racing on the world cup full time. And like, he uh, is able, I mean, he works to support himself as well on the side of being an Olympic world cup athlete. Um, and so like, you know, he has to worry a little bit less about funding now, um, which is, which is really huge. And I think that's just a hurdle that I don't, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm thankful for the things that I learned and like the hurdles that I had to go over cause they taught me a lot and I transitioned those into other things, but um it's just, it's too bad that, you know, our, some of our best skiers, like some of their decisions and their, their willingness to like throw themselves into being the best has to be made around, you know, based on the cost. Um, and it's just a reality. I mean, it's expensive and like, yeah, there's a lot of other things that people can spend their money's on money on sponsors. And why should I give you 30 grand? You know, well, yeah, that's a great question. So I think as a skier, it's our responsibility to be able to answer that question I mean, I had a sponsor. Why should I give you 20 grand instead of giving it to boys and girls club? Yeah, that's a great question. And if you can't answer that, it's going to be hard to raise money. But I think you can, there is a reason and you can figure that out. You can figure out why you're worth that. But um, it definitely took, it took me a while. It took me some work to figure that out, but. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting topic to me because I don't think people see it with that perspective. So let's shift gears again. I'd like to ask you, you know, I've been the Toko glove designer from the beginning. What's your favorite Toko glove model and why? Oh man. Oh man. I it used to be the Profi. I know that because you'd always ask for Profi. Profis. Um, the Profi, that was my, that was my race glove. I mean, that's the number one race glove. Like can't beat it super thin, pretty warm for how thin it is. I would wear that at every, any sprint. I knew I want pure power. So I just like the strap tight on my hand. Um, that thing felt when I put those on, like that was like race time. I was like, Oh heck yeah, we're ready to rip. Uh, some of the, like the thermo plus, I think, I think there's a couple gloves in the Toko line that are really, um, impressive to me. And for me, what impressive is, is, is in a glove is, is basically warmth to thickness ratio. Mm -hmm. So growing up in Alaska, I mean, it's pretty cold most of the time. Uh, and so, and I hate big puffy gloves. Like when you're trying to ski fast, you're doing intervals and you're doing sprints. Like I don't like the straps having all kinds of padding in between the strap and my gloves. So, uh, like the thermo thermo plus, I think, and, uh, even the classic, the thermal race for me is the winner in that category, the bulk ratio. Yeah. So yeah, having ones that are, yeah. Um, so that's, that's kind of how I view them. Like I, I, you know, I want them to be, cause like no one wants, I mean, if your hands are cold, you're not thinking of it. You can't, you can't focus. So, uh, and then the ones, I mean, the, the convertible one with the cover, like that's pretty cool. Yeah. That's a, that's a cool. Um, yeah, that's, that's cool invention. Um, and that's great for like even multi-sport stuff, running and biking and stuff, you know, um, yeah, they're, they're great. I, I truly, I mean, I've been sponsored by, I've been a Toko athlete since pretty early on. Uh, and I have, 
I'm a huge advocate for the gloves. I mean, honestly, it's like you go to the store and I mean, there's, there's a lot of great gloves out there. There's a lot of companies that make really sweet gloves, but um, also the cost, like when you look at you like, okay, for, for 35 bucks, 40 bucks, what do I get versus like 90 bucks or a hundred bucks or like, I'm like, man, you could, yeah, that's, I mean, that Togo gloves are probably what I would buy with my own money, you know? So um, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're great. Thank you. Hey, I have a question for you. Um, you sent me a picture a while, some many years ago, and it was uh, the Toco coaches pack full of a bunch of wood that you had cut and split. <laughs> Do you still use the coaches pack for um, non-traditional uses like that? That pack is that pack may be maybe the single most unique product that Toco makes. Like I, I use that thing. I use that thing two days ago at a photo shoot. I use that all the time. And everywhere I go, people are like, what is that? Can I get that? I'm like, they're like, is that, a, is that a photo pack? Like, I'm like, nope. I took it the other day. I went, I went, uh, kite skiing. Uh, or I learned how to kite. Like I was you know, flying a big wing in the air and I want to like get to where I can get pulled on like a wakeboard or skis or whatever. And you know, I'm like, Oh, I need all this stuff. I need my harness and all these extra clothes. Cause it was cold and food and water and extra boots and all this stuff. And like, that pack, man, that's like the, that thing is money. I mean, I honestly think that that you need to market that thing like mainstream. <laughs> like that's that, yeah, it's that pack is uh yeah. Firewood. I, I have some, I took my, took my wife when I first started dating Jessica, I took her on some pretty nice romantic dates and I would load that thing up. And then, so the bottom half was full of firewood and the top half was full of like takeout food and yeah. blankets. And, and I put this big thing on. She's like, what the heck is that? Like, you know, cause it's pretty big when it's full. And I was like, don't worry, don't worry. You know, and then we'd get down to the beach and I like keep unloading and like <laughs> things just keep coming. It's like Pandora's box, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Okay. Let me ask you a couple of, of kind of personality questions that uh, uh, I think people would like to hear your perspective on. What do you know now that you wish that you had known when you're 18? Oh man, where do I start? Um... <laughs> Yeah, I guess one thing that comes to mind is just um, being being more open to like other people's perspectives. Um, marriage has taught me that. Getting older a little bit has taught me that. That you know, it's like you always just you're like in your own space and you're right, and this is the way I see the world, and that's how it is. And um, I think just learning to be more understanding of other people's circumstances and uh to you know maybe have compassion for where people are coming from and it's different than you we all have a different upbringing we all have different you know our, our parents were different and our situations were different and so um i don't you know it doesn't mean that everybody's right and that you're wrong or vice versa but it just means like being more understanding i think so uh that doesn't really apply to it's not a ski specific question, but, um, yeah, that's something that I think I, uh, I'm a lot better at now. And I think it's, it, you know, listening, I guess when I was 18, I, I would, I did not listen, truly listen, like listen to what people and be like, Oh, like that's, that's where they're coming from. That's what they mean. Here's how I can, you know, the difference between listening to what is it like listening to listening to hear versus like listening to yeah. help or whatever. So Yeah listening better maybe sounds good 
Here's a here's a fun question. What is something about you that might surprise people if they were to find out? Um, I'm I'm actually pretty I'm I'm pretty weird and I'm pretty goofy. Like my wife will tell you that, and I I'm not really like that like around people that I don't know very well. But um, I'm pretty uh, like a lot of people are like I don't know. People be like, oh, you're you're pretty you're so intense and you're so you're always like so driven and stuff and i'm like ah man i don't you know i don't feel that way like i just so i think uh so you said you're kind of weird and you're pretty weird and you're kind of goofy can you say one thing that is weird about you um yeah i don't know just like dumb you know not afraid to like say dumb jokes or like not be funny or like make weird sound effects or I don't know. Uh, I get it. That's cool. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, 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 uh, I'm shying away from actually demonstrating for you, but you know, you probably get the idea. (laughs) Uh, Do you have a, lastly, do you have a mantra or philosophy that can be summed up in a few words? Oh man. Um, I've been trying to, I mean, I've been trying to learn how to, how to truly love people Uh, and not, not like in the Hallmark card way, but like, like, what does love look like? Like, how do I love this person or that person or this person, you know, who, who, who's in need or, or needs something and like, how can, you know, and, and kind of along that, that flavor of before, like not necessarily in the way that I, I think that they need to be loved, but like, how would they, um, how would they feel loved by me? Um, that's not really a mantra, but it's something that I've kind of thinking about more these days and how do I, um, be that for people around me? Uh, and it's, it's challenging because every, it's like, it's like 100% not in the way that you are, you know, are natural at. So that's really Um, cool. I mean, I have a ton of, uh, admiration and respect for what you just said. That's fantastic. Thanks. Yeah. Well, it's uh, <laughs> definitely have not mastered that one. So, yeah, but um, a lot of people don't try. And the trying is the key part. You know, you're trying to become the person you want to be. Let's call it, let's put it that way. You yeah. know, and that's really admirable. A lot of people are just happy with, they say, I'm just me, you know, whereas, yeah. whereas I, I think that's really admirable is to try to become the person that you would like to be. It takes courage. That's really cool. Yeah, thanks. It's, uh, yeah, it's humbling because you realize how bad you are, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and I think being okay, you know, being okay with failure and being like, man, I totally, totally whiffed on that one or I just don't, you know, I mean, I like to feel, we all like to feel like we're good at, you know, that's kind of probably why we get into something. We just stick there because it's like, I'm good at this and I, yeah. I'm the, people know that I'm good, but, it's like, oh man, you go into this realm and you're just not good. And, but being okay with that, being like, yeah, I don't know what I'm doing. Like I, I suck at that, but next time I'll suck a little less. Okay. I'm going to get a little personal, but it's along the same lines, but I've noticed for whatever reason, like I might have love in my heart for somebody and want to help them and, and, and in a very positive manner. 
and say something and bug them. Yeah. Whereas I know that someone else might say the exact same words, have the exact same intent and make their day. And I've noticed that, that, you know, with some people, I don't resonate as well as I do with other people. You know, everyone's got their, their cup of tea kind of a thing. Yeah. But, and so I know, okay, I can't make everyone happy all the time, even if I try, but what it, what it's meant to me is there are some situations where I have, I personally have to make a special effort to be softer because I can be intimidating without wanting to be, mm-hmm. or I can come across a way that I don't want to come across, even if I don't have it, one ounce of it in me. Right. And, and like, for example, when I go skiing, I like to help people. I see someone fall, fall down and they can't get up. So I'll stop and I'll, and, and when I do that, when I stop, I have to make a special effort to look as friendly as I possibly can. And then I'll say, can I help you? And then they usually say something like, um, yeah, I'm trying to figure out how to get up. If you could show me how to get up, that'd be great. So then I show them how to get up and then they, you know, we could go in their way and it's great. But yeah. I've noticed that if I don't make a special effort to look especially friendly, I might, I might be like some arrogant hotshot guy, right. kind of, you know, helping this dumbass who just felt, you know what I mean? Like come yeah, across yeah. completely opposite of how I mean to. So I, I make the special effort to overcome this, this particular obstacle that I have with some people sometimes to come across as friendly, even if I'm friendly as heck, you know? Yeah. And, and so I, I think that that's not a bad thing to have a little bit of self-awareness and to try to then overcome whatever natural obstacles we have to become a more friendly, likable person, you know, because it gives me the opportunity to make people's day, you know, and that's a great thing. And it's it's exactly what you're striving for. And I'm, I have a ton of respect for that because it takes courage. And, and then, uh, you know, sometimes you look in the mirror and you don't like what you see, even if you're trying your hardest and it really is um, a great quality. I think I really respect that. Yeah. Well, thanks. It's, um, yeah, I think, you know, for me, it's, it's kind of about humility and being humble enough to be like, I need to do, I need to do it there the way that they want, yeah. you know, like, I mean, wife is a great example or, you know, girlfriend or, or, or parent or, or brother, like my brother, like I have to learn to, to like do things for him in the way that he wants it, not just the way that I want it. You know, it's like, it's like giving someone a gift that you want and being like, Hey, you know, happy, happy birthday girlfriend here's the yeah. new motocross bike you know it's like what no yeah. that's it yeah so being like nope like this is how i would i i don't like i don't necessarily even agree with this but like here's how i would do it but i know that this is how you would like it and yeah. i'm gonna do it that way um yeah and then being self-aware yeah because if you pull up in your black and yellow toco tights with your matching jacket and your matching hat and you're like mr fast guy and you're like hey can i help you up they're like oh this guy's a dick you know right. but it's like wait what no and what i really want is for them to feel like i'm part of their crew like they belong yeah. that's what i really want i want them yeah. to feel like they belong and without wanting to i might make them feel like they don't belong at all yeah exactly <laughs> and i'm doing i'm doing my best to do exactly the opposite but and so that's when I, I just learned that and it's along this it's not exactly what you're saying but it's along the yeah same it's line a, where Totally. So, yeah. yeah, that's really cool. I really respect that. No, thanks. So, so Reese, you're about to become a father in a few days. We, you and I have been friends for quite a few years. Yeah. I think we've always had a really good connection that I've enjoyed. Um, I know you will be an exceptional father and will continue to be a great husband. That said, I think it is difficult to anticipate how the world is going to change and actually <laughs> how you yourself are going to change after becoming a father. Everything changes. The world changes too. 
I think becoming married and then becoming a father and having the opportunity to raise a family is not only the greatest opportunity for joy in this life, but it represents the greatest opportunity for self-development and to learn as well. I'm excited for you in this journey that you're on. I appreciate very much the you giving me the time today. It's been a long interview, but I think it's been really rewarding. And for your friendship, which I've enjoyed for many years, and I hope to continue to keep in touch with you and Jessica and your family. I look forward to hearing from you soon and wish you the best. And please say hello to Jessica for me. I've seen her walking around back in there. Maybe yeah. she's listening right now so she can she knows that I've been I'm saying hello. Yeah. Thank you. Well, it, yeah, it's been awesome. And I, I appreciate like obviously this the support from Toko and, and the stuff over the years and um, also your friendship. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm excited. Uh, we're gonna have, I guess, the next what, the next generation of Winter Warrior coming yeah. soon. So <laughs> <laughs> um yeah it'll be it'll be great it's uh i uh i think i'm as ready as i can be and um i'm sure i'm gonna learn a lot it's gonna be very very humbling and probably very frustrating too so well just know uh, i have a lot of confidence in you but i also will be rooting for you in this next chapter of your life and and uh, i'm sure you'll do great yeah thanks well, ian yeah